All right. Hey, you can be seated and I can be seated. <laughs> Just to be fair and because I'm feeling kind of shaky for some reason. Uh, hey, how many of y'all were here last week? Okay. How many of y'all weren't here last week? Go to church. No, I'm, I'm just kidding, but seriously, go to church. Last week, Pastor Trey did such a great job preaching on a really tough topic. And if you were here last week, you might have had this thought, man, Bobby really gave Trey a tough passage. Like, why would he do that? This is why. Because it's just so fun. It's just so fun to watch him squirm and have answers to these tough questions and answer the emails that will come as a result. Now, the real reason is really it comes down to three different reasons. One, sometimes it's simply how our preaching calendar tends to fall. You know, he was scheduled for this week. We're going through in an expository way a section of Scripture, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so these, it was kind of just in the cards for him. Sometimes it comes down to uh, how well one of our pastors um, can handle a certain hard topic, or maybe they have experience in handling those hard topics, and so we'll assign it to them because they just do such a great job. Trey does a great job handling some hard topics of our day. Uh, but sometimes, uh, with our younger leaders, our younger pastors, as uh, I think through the preaching calendar, as I meet with Pastor Michael, uh, I, I will assign these challenging topics to our young pastors because the next generation of pastors need to learn how to tackle hard truths and take their stand in the Word of God. Like, that's why we do it. Like, this is the training ground for them to learn how to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints and to say with Luther, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Like we don't want you to think that when Pastor Michael and I are up here preaching that our stand on any topic or on what the Scripture is saying is just an old man screaming at the moon. Like this isn't an age thing. This is a Word of God thing. And so we need to help our young pastors build up their courage now because it doesn't seem like it's going to get any easier to stand for sound doctrine. And so if you'll open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, this is exactly what Jesus is teaching in His Sermon on the Mount. Sound doctrine with some very hard truths that if we take them seriously, hear this, if we take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, it will completely turn our lives upside down. Like if we take the Word of Jesus seriously, it will change our lives forever. To follow Christ means to follow what He actually says. Now once, uh, I think in the late 50s, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, was criticized by a liberal scholar who accused him of a number of things, but one of the things he said in his own words were, uh, he accused Lewis of not caring much for the Sermon on the Mount. And so, C.S. Lewis wrote a response, and in that response he said, as to caring for 
the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. Hear that. Like, can you open up the words of Jesus? Can you open up the New Testament and read the Gospels and hear the teaching of Jesus with just this sense of peaceful tranquility? Even the hard sayings of Jesus? If you can, you have a spiritual problem. The reality is this, the Sermon on the Mount flattens all of us. It flattens all of us. Like, have you been flattened by the words of Jesus? Because, guys, if you haven't been flattened, you have yet to be found by Jesus. Like, you have to get lost before you can get found. Now, Jesus said in His teaching a lot of stuff that we could probably all immediately kind of get on board with, right? Like, allow the little children to come to Me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Ooh, I like that. That makes me feel good. Or come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Ooh, I like that. But Jesus also said some things that probably made His disciples cringe and even shudder. Like Jesus said some things that most likely made the disciples want to call upon the inner lawyer that all of us have to kind of debate and spar with and cross-examine what they were hearing. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus states this six different times. You have heard that it was said, followed by, but I say to you. He does that six times in chapter 5. And with each of these times, He raises the bar on what was the accepted norm or the standard teaching of the day. Now I want you to understand, I said this a couple weeks back, Jesus had no problem with it is written. Like Jesus didn't have a problem with the Word of God. He didn't have a problem with the Hebrew Scriptures. He didn't have a problem with it is written. He had a problem with what they had been hearing from the teachers of their day, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And so he prefaces these six statements by telling those who had gathered to hear him, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of their day, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Like Those are some shocking words in the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, unless you're more spiritual than the spiritual people that you kind of look up to and you feel intimidated by, unless you're more spiritual than them, you're not even going to heaven. Then he goes on in these six statements to refute what the people had been taught. Their faulty understanding of what God's standard for living was. And then He calls them, hear this, further up and further in to a deeper righteousness. Like I love how 
R.T. France explains what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Jesus' aim is not to establish a new and demanding and more demanding set of rules to supplant those of the scribes and the Pharisees. You thought they were strong. They had Ten Commandments. I have twenty. Jesus wasn't doing that. What He was doing is this. His purpose is to establish a greater righteousness. A different understanding of how we should live as the people of God. And so Jesus stands or sits before the crowd and He lifts His voice and in doing so, He tells them, you have heard that it was said about murder, about adultery, about divorce, about the taking and keeping of oaths, but I say to you, and with each statement He raises the bar. And with each statement He calls them further up and further in to that deeper righteousness. To follow Jesus means to follow what He actually said. Now by this point, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, the people are probably beginning to ask themselves, um, where's all that good news I'd been hearing about? Because everything He says makes me feel worse about myself. Like everything He's saying up there makes me feel like I don't measure up. But guys, remember, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came because that was the true spiritual condition of everybody on earth. He came because even the religious and moral people of His day needed a Savior. Jesus came to purchase a people for Himself and in this Sermon on the Mount, He calls them to a deeper righteousness. And these next two statements that we're going to look at today about deeper righteousness are what John Stott calls both the most admired and the most resented parts of His sermon. Like we love it and we hate it. Like we're drawn to it and we're irritated by it. Like it makes us want to like just sing for joy and get into a fight in what Jesus says here. And so, nowhere is the challenge deeper and nowhere is our need for the power beyond ourselves more obvious. Jesus tells them, verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We've all heard that, right? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I mean, that was Old Testament. That was Hammurabi's code. Like, we get that. Like, where did these people hear it from? Well, they heard it from the Hebrew Scriptures, both in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24. This was given for the Israel as a nation to be carried out by their judicial system. Like, its purpose was to ensure that any punishment was proportionate to the offense that the punishment fit the crime. Like today, the way we do our legal system, this is the way it works, right? If you steal something, you need to pay a fine or pay it back or spend some time in jail. If you like steal something, they don't like set you on fire, hopefully, right? That's not, that's, that's not proportionate. Like the punishment should fit the crime. That comes from this command, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
which in our day, just the wording of that sounds really extreme, but you got to understand, guys, 1,500 years before the birth of Christ, if we were fighting in a field and you knocked out somebody's eye, like they wouldn't just take your eye. They would take your life. You caused me to lose my eye. I'm going to kill you. And then I'm going to find your wife and I'm going to kill her. And I'm going to find all your kids and I'm going to kill them. And I'm going to kill everybody in your tribe and then I'm going to go on Ancestry.com and look up everybody who's remotely related to you, all those cousins, and I'm going to kill every single one of them. Like it's going to be a blood feud. Like this law was given to stop that level of personal escalation, right? You cause me to lose an eye, I cause you to lose your life or your family or your whatever. Because that's what was going on. And so this law defined true justice for the people of Israel and it restrained personal vengeance. And so, you got to wonder if this was a good law why does Jesus have such a problem with it? Like, why is He calling it out? Why does Jesus have a problem with this law? Well, guys, the reality is Jesus doesn't have a problem with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth carried out by nas- national Israel as part of their judicial system. His problem with, was not with it is written. Jesus' problem with, was with what they had heard from their teachers. Like in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees had kind of loosened the bonds on this law, moving its application uh, kind of out of the courtroom and began to use it to justify personal vengeance. Like not the police getting involved, not the judges and the courts getting involved, but just me and you. It justified this, I don't get mad, I get even kind of mentality. And so to that mentality, Jesus responds, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In this teaching, Jesus is kind of answering the question for the audience, like how does a citizen of the kingdom of heaven respond to a personal offense? Right? To a a personal attack. To a personal slam to an inflict, somebody inflicting something on their personal rights. And I want you to understand from the beginning, Jesus is not saying that your job as a Christian is to become a doormat for everyone in the culture. Just let everybody take advantage of you. He's not saying that. And He's certainly not saying that you are to stay in some kind of unsafe or abusive situation. Like you need to look out for yourself and for your family. Pastor Sam Storms explains it really well. He says, Jesus is not forbidding us from opposing evil when it threatens our families or our society. He is forbidding the taking of revenge for purely personal reasons. 
when nothing is ultimately at stake except our pride, our reputation, our so-called rights. Like Jesus is forbidding us from taking the law into our own hands. Like Jesus is forbidding us from kind of having a get-even mentality. He's forbidding us from taking revenge. And so He gives us four illustrations of what He's talking about. In the first illustration, it shows us how to respond to a personal insult. Like back in that day, to strike somebody on the right cheek meant that you backhanded them with your right hand, which was intended to be a uh, an act of ultimate humiliation. Like you slapped somebody on the right uh, cheek, once again, in that culture, to humiliate them. And so what does Jesus say? Give him your other cheek and see, see what I do with that. Like see what God can do with that. The second illustration shows us how to respond to our personal rights when they're violated. In fact, it's interesting that the Old Testament law actually has a law that says that for the poor, you were not allowed to ever take their cloak from them. You could take their shirt if, if they owed you, but you could never take the outer garment because it kept them warm. It was their cover at night. Like there was an actual law that covered that. That was their right. However, Jesus calls His followers to set aside their personal rights in cases like that. And the third illustration stays with the theme of personal rights by introducing what is now the famous idiom, uh, going the extra mile. Like we've all heard that. But it comes from this passage. Israel was an occupied territory under Roman rule and the Jews could legally be compelled to aid a Roman soldier by carrying a load for them up to a thousand paces or a mile. And so what does Jesus say? He says, hey, double it. Just double it. And see what I can do with that. In fact, he's, he's really saying, I'm not saying go 2,000 paces, but not 2,001. Don't worry about the paces. Just see what I will do with that. Take the first mile, walk that first mile for King Caesar, and walk the next one for King Jesus. And just see what Jesus will do with that. And then finally, the fourth illustration shows us how to understand our personal resources. You know, the Jews of that day would rather die than become a beggar. And so this means that Jesus is talking about somebody who's not just slacking off or being lazy and is trying to take advantage. This is somebody who's in legitimate need. And so Jesus says the children of the kingdom are generous people. And we need to be generous people. In each of these illustrations, we should, as Jesus is teaching us, not fight for our rights or fight for our just due. In fact, D.A. Carson goes as far as to say what Jesus is saying in these verses more than anything else is that His followers, hear this, have no rights. I mean, let that sink in. Jesus is saying that the followers of the Messiah have laid their rights at the foot of the cross and that they answer to Him. 
In fact, that's what true strength looks like. Jesus isn't calling us to weakness, but the meekness, strength under control. He's saying, let God be the one who defends you. Let God be the one who fights for you and see what He will do. Well, next Jesus tells him in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, that doesn't sound right, does it? I mean, we may believe that. We may think that in our head. Like that that's okay. That may be the attitude of our heart, but we would never say that out loud. But this was the accepted standard of the day. Like Jesus counters it with these famous words, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Like this verse is both famous and famously ignored. Like we love it and we don't do anything with it. Not just because it's difficult, but because it seems a little crazy. It sounds a little reckless. Like, like Jesus, what are you saying? Like if I'm just like walking down the street and some guy tries to rob me or I'm driving down the road and somebody puts a gun in the window and steals my car, I'm just supposed to say, hey, let's hug it out. Like what are you saying? Like we come up with these crazy scenarios for the purpose of giving us some wiggle room so that we might dismiss this command. But Jesus, once again, is calling us to a deeper righteousness. Further up and further in. The real issue Jesus is addressing is, what is your heart's attitude and your heart's response to your enemies? To those people. You know those people. Those ones who have hurt and wounded you and never thought of asking forgiveness. Like, what's your heart's response to them? What's your heart's response to those who have opposed you at every turn? To the ones who have stabbed you in the back? What is your heart's response to the ones who mock you, make fun of you, ridicule you for my sake? What's your heart's response to them? What's your heart's response to the ones who would like to trample you under their feet? And Jesus says, hey, I, I know that everyone else says it's okay to hate them, but it's not. But this was the moral standard of the day. And they get it from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which taught this. Hear these words. Love your neighbor as yourself. The end. Love your neighbor as yourself. You may be thinking, wait, something's missing. Like, did I skip it? No, I didn't skip it. It's just not there. They added to the Word of God. Like, nowhere in the law are the people of God commanded to hate anyone. You will not find it. It's not there. But the law for the people in the first century had been distorted by the scribes and the Pharisees in at least three ways. This law, first by a, by a key omission. Like they weakened the standard of love by leaving out the words, as yourself. Like that takes love to a whole nother level. The thought that I need to love somebody as I love myself, because I'm pretty fond of myself. I like me. 
I take care of me. I feed and clothe me. I'm supposed to love other people that way? And so they distorted it by this key omission. They also distorted it secondly by setting a limitation on love. Like they narrowed the objects of love by insisting that the word neighbor could only mean a fellow Israelite. Those are the only people you are commanded to love. And then third, they distorted this law with the addition of these words, hate your enemies. In fact, I mean, I'll give them a break. Maybe they thought it was implied, right? Maybe they thought, I mean, after all, God wouldn't want us to treat our neighbors this way unless we were supposed to see how we were treating our neighbors in contrast with how we were treating everybody else. And so I'm going to love my neighbors. I'm going to kind of like some of these people and I'm going to hate these guys' guts. Like, that must be what God meant by love your neighbor as yourself. Like they actually thought in the first century that this was acceptable. And so a common question of the day was, who is my neighbor? Like who am I responsible to love? Who am I responsible to care for? Like what category of people does God expect me to be nice to? Like what they had heard, what, what had been commanded to them by the scribes and the Pharisees that was that love was limited to fellow Israelites, people who looked like me, thought like me, believed like me, people of my tribe, people of my family. They actually thought that they were honoring God by hating Gentiles. But what Jesus wants is to love without limits. Like Jesus wants us to love without limits. Like He says, but I say to you, love, agape, your enemies. Understand, there's no change of the person's status. No change of the standard. Like if you come up to me and you punch me in the face repeatedly, I am commanded to love you, but what you're doing is still wrong. Like these people are still possibly enemies of the cross. Enemies of God. Doing reckless and terrible things. It doesn't change the status of their change. Of their things. You don't say that now bad is good. But you also don't say because of what they have done or who they are or what they look like or what they believe, I have permission by God to hate them. You don't. Instead, you need to pray for them and draw upon a love that only God has that is impossible, humanly speaking. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about this. He said, Praying for those who persecute you is the supreme demand of Scripture. Now, Bonhoeffer knew a little bit about being persecuted. Like he was imprisoned and then finally executed by the Nazis in World War II. And so when he says that praying for your enemies is the supreme demand of Scripture, like he knows something about enemies. Like his enemies were actual, literal Nazis. You may just call your enemies Nazis. They're not really Nazis. Like it may be a neighbor who lets his dog poop in your yard. He's not a Nazi. He's just a jerk. Right? But this guy had enemies who were actual Nazis and he prayed for them. Jesus tells us to love our enemies and to pray for them, possibly because sometimes the only thing you can do with your enemies is pray for them. 
And so what does He want to, us to pray? Why does He want us to pray for our enemies? Well, Jesus, first of all, wants something to change in us. Like He wants us to pray for our enemies because He wants something to change in us, to change in our hearts. There's just something about praying for somebody by name that changes how you see that person. See, Jesus doesn't want us to just love them by not hating them. Like That's not what He's saying. He wants us to see them as people who are made in the image of God. These enemies of yours are people loved by God. They're people for whom Christ died. Like Jesus wants us to pray for them because He wants our hearts invested in them. And so He says pray. But Jesus also wants something to change in them. He wants us to pray for them because He wants something to change in their heart. I mean, think about who was the greatest enemy of the church in the first century? A guy named Saul of Tarsus who breathed out threats against God's elect and had letters to go in every city and haul them off to prison to be beaten, to be scourged, to be crucified. And we know how his story ends. It ends pretty well. Don't you think that the disciples who had heard this teaching, don't you think they were obeying it literally and praying by name for Saul of Tarsus? That he would see the light, and of course he did. And we know him as, of course, the Apostle Paul. And so God wants us to pray for people that are in the different political party than us. Jesus wants us to pray for people, like relatives, that we can't forgive for something they've done. Parents who have wounded us deeply. Jesus wants us to pray for that guy at work who took the credit for the job that you did. And Jesus wants us to pray for our enemies and for our frenemies. <laughs> I mean, just imagine, what might your prayers accomplish if you really begin to pray for those who persecute you? For those who are genuinely your enemies or enemies of the cross? I mean, Saul became Paul. Could you imagine that knock on the door being answered by Ananias. And he sees this blinded man in front of him who has been persecuting the church. He knows who he is and he invites him in. He sits him down and he gives him something to drink and something to eat. And then he prays over him and calls him his brother. I mean, we love that story, but that's not our story. Here's our reality. Like we love justice, don't we? Like, I love justice. Like, I love payback. I love, like, I love fairness. Like, I crave it. Like, I crave real justice. And I think all of us do. Like, we don't ask WWJD, what would Jesus do? We ask WWJWD, what would John Wick do? Right? Like, you, you killed my dog. I'm going to kill you and your whole family. In fact, I'm going to spend the next four movies killing people. Like we watch that and we love it because it resonates with us. Like we love justice. We, don't, we just don't want it applied to us. So what's our motivation? Why, why should we pray for people who hate us? Jesus tells us, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
Show yourself to be a son or daughter of God by praying for your enemies. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And it should be like Father and like Son. Jesus is saying, if you are His, you should look like Him. I mean, God shows common grace to people who hate Him. And so Jesus is in a sense saying, you have permission to hate your neighbor and hate your enemy when the sun shines in your yard, but it's dark as night next door. When the rain comes to your yard, but there's a drought right next door, then you can have permission to hate your enemies. But it's not going to happen. God sends sun. He sends rain. He brings blessing on the people who do not love Him. And we know that because we've all experienced it on a personal level. Like none of us deserve the grace of God. Jesus goes on to ask these questions. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Like He takes the lowest like lowest person within their culture. Like the Jewish tax collector who's betrayed His people. And He says, okay, so you love people who are just like you. Slow clap, Jesus, right? Like even the scum of the earth, the, the worst of the worst, these tax collectors, they do that. They have other tax collectors they like. They have other sinners that they love. Like they're doing just what you're doing. What more are you doing? And then He says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more, keyword there, more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The people who do not know God, who do not know the covenant, who are not the people of promise, they're doing exactly what you're doing. Like everyone behaves this way. That's no different from the people that you hate. What more are you doing than that? Like I am calling you further up and further in into a deeper righteousness. But Jesus, I'll be taken advantage of. I'll just get used. How far am I supposed to go with this? To which Jesus responds, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How far should you take this? To perfection. Like when you are perfect in your love, you've, you've reached. I'm not going to lower the bar for you. Like I love the movie um, Remember the Titans and Denzel Washington says to the team, we will be perfect in every aspect of the game. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, hey, when it comes to love, like here's the standard, perfection. Here's the standard, be like your Father. In fact, in quoting, he's quoting from the Old Testament here. In the Old Testament, we're told over and over to be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And in this passage, Jesus substitutes the word perfect, which means whole or complete or mature. He substitutes it for the word holy. Why? Because the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes had taught that holiness was merely an external thing. Shiny on the inside, corrupt. I'm shiny on the outside, corrupt on the inside. They were whitewashed tombs. 
that went around the world to make one convert. And when they did, they made Him twice as much a son of hell as them. They were vipers. Like they were, they were tombs filled with whitewashed bones. And so Jesus instead says, it's not about just the outside. It's about the inside. So be perfect. Be mature. Be complete. Be whole in the distribution of your love. Like Jesus wants us to turn enemies into opportunities. Like what might be gained by obeying the teaching of Jesus in these verses? Like give God an opportunity to defend you. Give God an opportunity to fight for you. Give God the opportunity to turn an enemy like a Saul into a brother like Paul who wrote these words in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What might be gained if you obey this? A Paul instead of a Saul. What might be lost if you obey this? Your pride. Your stuff. Your rights. See, Jesus, Jesus wants us to turn our enemies into opportunities and He wants us to follow Him by following His example. See, Jesus isn't calling us to unfamiliar territory. Like We're never more like Jesus than we're, when we are returning good for evil. Like this is what Jesus modeled for us. We read in Romans chapter 5 these words, for while we were still weak, that word means powerless, inept, unable, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for who? The ungodly. God shows His love for us in that while we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. When did God do this for us? When we cleaned up our act? When we got it all together? When we started going to church? Stopped drinking? Stopped partying? No more drugs? My life is all together? I'm polished and shiny just like a Pharisee? No. He did it while we were weak. Ungodly sinners, enemies of God. At that moment, at our lowest moment, when we were running from God, Jesus died for us and reconciled us to God. Jesus calls us to follow that example in how we treat our enemies. In 1 Peter 2, it says of Jesus, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in His mouth. 
When they hurled insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. And nowhere is this seen more clearly than by the example He set from the cross. For when He was nailed to the cross and hung there, hearing the insults, the mocking, the jeers by the crowd as they went by, what does He say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's pray. Lord, Je- Lord Jesus, this seems like an, just an absolutely impossible standard. To love our enemies, it's hard enough loving our friends. It's hard enough loving those who outlove us and to catch up with their love, but to love those who oppose us, who mock us, who want nothing to do with us, who think that we're stupid or ignorant or whatever, the ones who want to do us actual harm? Lord, how? Unless Your love first is shed abroad in our hearts, it is impossible. And so Lord Jesus, I thank You that You are not only the example of this kind of love, but You're the One who gives us the power to love like this. And I thank You that we can come to this table as a uh, tangible reminder every every week of how You loved those who were weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies of God and gave Yourself for them. And so Lord Jesus, I pray now that You would bless this bread and make it for us true food. And bless this cup and make it for us true drink. May it nourish us Spiritually, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.